Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric Goldstein, the Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the Homeland Security Department. If you guys released a new cybersecurity strategic plan for CISA, why don't you walk me through it a little bit? What's in it? What looks good? Give, give me some background. We are really excited about the release of this cybersecurity strategic plan, which builds upon the national approach laid out in the the president's national cybersecurity strategy and our agency's uh, strategic plan that we released uh, last year. And what this cybersecurity strategic plan does is really takes the direction from those two plans and says, here's how we are going to execute our agency's cybersecurity mission to achieve what we think really needs to be transformative change in the cybersecurity landscape over the next three years. And so the plan outlines a series of objectives and goals, in particular three goals focused on addressing immediate threats, hardening the terrain, and driving security at scale, but also for the first time including real measures of effectiveness so that we can show not just that we are doing the work, but that our work is yielding actual security outcomes. And we think that's one of the real innovations in this plan that we're really proud of. Is this new for CISA to have a cybersecurity strategic plan, or is this something that you've had previously three years ago and you were just kind of building on and evolving and morphing, or was this, again, a new idea? We have really invested at CISA over the past two years in documenting and being transparent about our strategic planning as an agency. And so we released our first ever agency-wide strategic plan uh, last year, and we are now releasing our first ever cybersecurity strategic plan to really be very clear about how we prioritize our work and the outcomes that we are seeking to achieve as we continue to grow and mature as an agency. All right, so brand new plan. Uh, what was the impetus for it beyond the fact this is what CISA does, the cybersecurity? You do a lot more than that. But why this focus on cybersecurity? What really drove this decision to say, hey, we need a strategic plan within our strategic plan? Part of the impetus really was the new model manifested in the national cybersecurity strategy. And as we worked with partners uh, across the federal government, the private sector, led, of course, by our colleagues in the office of the national cyber director, you know, we really said, you know, this agency, CISA, is going to have to fundamentally adapt to a new model where we focus on shifting the burden of cybersecurity to those who can bear it, where we focus focus on driving prioritized investment in the security measures that reduce the most risk. And we focus on really deeply understanding threat activity and vulnerabilities in this country in a way that informs how we drive security for products and enterprises. And all of that requires some fundamental shifts in the work we do, how we prioritize our resources, and how we work with our stakeholders. And that's something that we felt was appropriate to really codify in a strategic plan and, and that we could then reflect transparently to our stakeholders so we can move on this journey together. There's plenty in this plan to go into, and we'll put a link on federalnewsnetwork.com so folks can find it easy. But let me maybe hone in a few areas, and I want to go to objective 2.3, which is the cyber capabilities to fill gaps. And this one really kind of drives home an area that really I think is is focused on, in many ways, the federal government and the federal agencies. You, one of the areas that you want to you know, measure of effectiveness, increase the percentage of federal civilian agencies adopting CISA directive requirements, increase the number of organizations 
outside of the FCEB that have adopted applicable requirements in CISA directives. Talk a little bit about that one and why that was uh, one of those that you put out there as a, as a big objective. One of the foundational precepts of this strategy is the fact that organizations, both federally and non-federally, are asked to do an extraordinary amount. Um, and oftentimes, they're asked to do too much. They're, they don't have the resources uh, to access the sort of services they need, uh, or they're unable to determine where to prioritize their scarce resources to most effect. And so CISA is really trying to fill two gaps in that area. The first is, where possible, we're trying to provide uh, affordable, effective commercial shared services that that fill gaps for our partners in a scalable way, which is really one of our core focus areas across the federal civilian executive branch. But we also want to help organizations prioritize their resources. So when they are spending that scarce security dollar, they're confident that it is on a measure that is driving down the most risk. And that's where our directives come into play. The goal of our binding operational directives and our emergency directives is really to guide investment towards the most important security activities those are, of course, binding for the federal civilian executive branch. So we want to focus on measuring uh, adherence uh, to our directives across the FSEB. But we also know that, that our directives have been extraordinarily impactful uh, in also driving investment and activity across non-federal partners. And that's something that we want to be able to measure as well. And one of the big measurements when you talk about it is, is increased percentage. So imagine you have some current statistics saying current adoption is 89% or 62% or whatever the number is, do you have that starting point? And then you're going to, okay, we have, you know, goal one and after a year will be 5% bigger and then goal two will be 10% bigger. Is that the way you have it laid out kind of maybe internally as well? We are really excited about the measures of effectiveness uh, in this in this plan because it really does put down a marker that we have to show quantifiable outcomes for our stakeholders and for national cybersecurity. Some of the of the measures of effectiveness uh, in this plan are ones where we already have data. So, for example, our progress in driving mitigation of known exploited vulnerabilities across federal networks, our progress uh, for agencies implementing our directive requirements. But some of these measures of effectiveness really are aspirational and reflect the sort of data-driven, outcome-oriented agency that we have to be to effectively serve our stakeholders and the country. And so one of our main efforts uh, over the duration of this plan is going to be to make sure that we have the data and the ability to measure the breadth of measures of effectiveness so we can actually show those outcomes across the board. Eric, I want to shift over to another uh, area of focus. There's plenty to talk to in that one, but the other one is cyber workforce, another big area, uh, objective 3.3, if you are scoring at home for folks. Yep. And this one is an important one because we've talked a lot about the cyber workforce. I think every agency is struggling with this. And, and one of your measures of effectiveness is to increase the number of cybersecurity students trained in courses offered by CISA, the percentage of cybersecurity courses funded by CISA. Talk a little bit about that one because we know how important it is, but it's also probably the hardest goal that you have or objective you have. I think that's exactly right. You know, we are really fortunate uh, to now have uh, a published uh, national cyber workforce strategy uh, to guide our direction uh, in this space, as as noted in our in our strap plan. You know, this is an area where CISA needs to be really focused and disciplined in the ad, in the aspect of the workforce challenge that we want to focus on, and we think that increasing the breadth, the availability, and the content of cybersecurity training that is available, particularly. Uh, 
uh, for communities that are currently deeply underrepresented uh, in the cybersecurity workforce is an area where we can really make an impact. And so we look forward to working, for example, with minority-serving institutions, with HBCUs uh, in the years to come to ensure that we are increasing the breadth of availability and access to cybersecurity training that is going to both uh, increase the breadth uh, of the workforce and ensure that we have a workforce that reflects the diversity of our country. The one thing that's not mentioned here, but I imagine it's still a huge priority, is CISA's own workforce and increasing the breadth, depth, training, and the like. Uh, It's not necessarily mentioned specifically, but how do they fit into this? Because I I think one of the big challenges is anytime someone says, oh, no, a new strategic plan, how is this going to affect me in the workforce? So I think there's probably two questions there, the training, and then, uh, uh, well, is this strategic plan broader effect of the CISA cyber workforce? The execution of this plan is predicated in significant part upon the continued growth and excellence of CISA's own workforce. Uh, Our agency plan, uh, which we released last year, uh, outlines uh, in great rigor uh, how we as an agency intend to invest and advance our own workforce. Uh, But you're absolutely right. That work is is essential to achieving the ambitious goals uh, outlined in the plan. Uh, You know, when we um, um, first released this plan to our workforce, I think there was a lot of excitement uh, about the rigor that we are putting into these outcome-oriented measures. Uh, We have been talking uh, at CISA for the past several years about the fact that across our programs and services, we have to show impact, we have to show outcomes, we have to show risk reduction. Uh, In fact, one of the first things that our director did uh, when she uh, took office uh, is to change uh, our mission state uh, to to understand, manage, and reduce the nation's cyber and physical risk. And the word reduce there really is absolutely critical. If we are, are not showing that the work that we are doing is reducing risk to our country, then we have to do something different. And I think the focus on that aspect in this strategy is really resonating with our workforce as, as really one of our North Stars for the years to come. You mentioned that when you kind of introduced this strategy to the workforce, how much did they play a role in the development of it? I imagine you and you know Matt Hartman and some of the folks at CISA didn't just go in a room and close the door and come back out an hour later with a plan. How, how did you socialize it? How did you include stakeholders? Discuss the development of it. Yeah, this has been a a really collaborative process where, you know, we took our agency plan, we took the national cybersecurity strategy, we took our internal annual operating plans, which guide our priorities each year. We developed what we thought as a leadership team would be our top priorities. We validated that uh, with our teams across the agency to end up with a product that not only would reflect well on our intent and our goals to our stakeholders internally, but would really resonate with the workforce. Uh, here at CISA, because frankly, we want a strategy that both our workforce and our stakeholders can see themselves in, can be proud of, and can really lean into executing, not just in the near term, but over the three-year duration of the plan. And I imagine as you look at the workforce and it continues to grow, the cyber talent management system, which I know goes across not just CISA, but across all of DHS, the workforce is key to a lot of these changes. The other piece of it is the budget, of course. Now, I know CISA had a big request, $3.1 billion in 2024 from the from the Biden administration. Who knows what Congress will end up? Do you get a sense that you'll, the funding for this is the other key piece that, that you really are paying attention to to make sure that you can support a lot of these goals, this this measurement, these efforts? The breadth of our national mission absolutely requires that our agency continues to responsibly grow. Uh, we remain confident that cybersecurity is a bipartisan and indeed nonpartisan issue. Uh, and so we certainly anticipate continued support from Congress to support our ongoing growth in the years to come. What's the big takeaway that you hope both industry 
who's going to look at this, and as well as the the CISA workforce, as well as maybe the federal workforce more broadly, uh, takes away from this new strategic plan? We hope that this plan reflects our ambition as an agency to play a critical role in driving the change that we need to see in national cybersecurity, but to do so in a way that is deeply grounded in partnerships and collaboration, recognizing that we are a piece of a community here and we need to lead this work together. Uh, Eric, it's always a pleasure to catch up. Eric Goldstein is the Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, and likewise. We have to take a break. When we return, we'll shift gears to talk about a different aspect of cybersecurity, vulnerability disclosure programs at the Department of Defense. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next three segments of the show, we're going to focus on the Department of Defense's use of the bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure programs to better secure their public-facing or unclassified networks. My guests today are Melissa Weiss, the Director of the Department of Defense's Vulnerability Disclosure Program, and Alana Cohen, the Chief Legal and Policy Officer at HackerOne. Melissa, Alana, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Melissa, it's great to catch up with you again. It's been a while since we've had you on. I think April, we caught up with what's going on with the VDB program. So let's start there. What's been going on over the last couple of months? What's the latest with the bug bounty, the vulnerability disclosure program, all these efforts really to try to get ahead of the uh, cyber threat? We've been very busy. As you know, we had a very successful defense industrial base pilot program that we launched last year that has been so good that we're really looking at how to bring that forth in a 2.0 fashion. We've certainly been working on setting up strategic partnership engagements with other uh, entities within the federal government to get after this big cybersecurity issues that are out there today. And one of the things when we talk about the, the cybersecurity program is, is the risks have changed so much over the years. And the VDB program has been one of those things that say, okay, how can we do better to get ahead of the risks? It, it, when you look back at, at the you know where you are today compared to where you were in, in terms of helping the department keep the data and system safe, how have things changed? How was programs like this so much more important than ever before? Well, certainly we were the first federal VDP program, but since that time, a lot more VDPs have sprung up after CISA's BOD 20-01, and so there are a lot more players out there looking to broaden the scope of protecting the DOD and also the private sector. One of the areas that we're really looking at is the coordinated Vulnerability Disclosure, or CVD, and that really takes a look at uh, using VDPs, traditional VDPs, and then marrying those up with bug bounty events as well, and that just gives a, a broader scope across. Now, of course, we did uh, get a scope expansion in 2021, so we went from being just uh, DOD websites to protecting all publicly accessible DOD information systems and networks. I want to just take a half a step back because folks may not be as familiar with the CVP program, I think, as you called it. You said the difference is adding and marrying the bug bounty events with the VDP effort. Maybe go into that a little bit more. A C. 
VD, uh, Coordinated Vulnerability Disclosure, is something that was coined by uh, OMB in the 32-20. So basically, it is a marrying of having not just traditional uh, vulnerability disclosure programs. Again, what those are are an ongoing, enduring program where you're always looking out at uh, these vulnerabilities and ingesting them in. We like to say that we're keeping that left of boom. So we're not looking at, at anything that has already occurred. We're, we're really going after the remediation of those vulnerabilities before an adversary has gotten their hands on it. So you marry that up with a more targeted, time-based uh, bug bounty program. And so those programs are short duration, monetized uh, events. So those are paid out events, whereas the VDP is non-monetary. We pay reputation points to the crowdsource ethical hackers for uh, submitting those reports. Alana, jump in here as well from HackerOne. Talk a little bit about this CVD program as well and, and how is this kind of the next evolution of this entire VDP discussion and bug bounty discussion that we've been having for the last six, seven years? Melissa, of course, has the history as um, the you know Defense Department was the first public sector organization to adopt VDP. There really has been a huge evolution in this program and an acceptance by the government. So you know you've seen VDP adoption in 2016 from the Defense Department, and then you saw the you know Melissa mentioned uh, some binding operational directives and also an OMB memo that required it for um, the rest of the federal government. And now you see really widespread acceptance of vulnerability disclosure programs. And also, as uh, she mentioned, this coordinated vulnerability disclosure. As recently as, I think, March of this year, and then in the from the White House, the cybersecurity strategy called for coordinated vulnerability disclosure, or CVD, programs across all technology types and sectors. So they're not just calling for, you know, the government is not just calling for this for their own house. They're saying the rest of the government, um, they're saying that all technologies, all sectors should adopt coordinated vulnerability disclosure. And that was reinforced in their White House implementation plan as well. So we're excited to see that because as I mentioned, the Defense Department has been seeing widespread success with these programs for years. And, you know, we're looking forward to the rest of the government and the private sector achieving that same success. Melissa, let's talk a little bit about that success. I know you uh, rattled off a lot of of the uh, interesting statistics the last time we spoke to you, but maybe just give a quick update. How big of an impact have the VDP program and the bug bounty programs had over the last, you know, six, seven, eight years? Certainly saw a huge uptick during the COVID lockdowns. Um, that was a tremendous boom for us as well. I would say that um, prior to our the COVID era, uh, we were happy with about an average of about 300 reports per month. During COVID, the first year, we were well over 1,200, and uh, the second year in, we went up to 2,100 uh, reports per month. So we were really rocking and rolling. We currently, today, we're starting to come back 
back down now that uh, the world has opened back up and all those crowdsource uh, ethical hackers have gotten out of their apartments and enjoying life maybe a little bit more. Uh, you know, we're coming back down to not totally down to pre-COVID numbers, but we're sitting right a bit over 47,000 reports that have been submitted to us and worked process since 2016. So it is a uh, an ever-changing landscape, as uh, we were just talking about, and we're always looking at ways of bumping that up and making it more successful. I definitely want to talk about the ways you're bumping it up and making it more successful. You mentioned the DIB for a second, but maybe ask Alana as well. Taking a step back just from DOD, not just DOD, but what are you seeing as trends among the use of VDP, bug bounty, whether in government or more broadly across a, a private sector? There's clearly an uptick. As I mentioned, DOD led the way for the government. And uh, now that it's a requirement, of course, we see all government agencies adopting uh, VDP programs. But even across the private sector, there is just a, a, a greater acceptance of vulnerability disclosure programs as, as just part of the backbone of a strong cybersecurity program. There's no longer any reluctance or concern about what it means to invite ethical hackers into your you know, program to try to help identify vulnerabilities before cyber criminals exploit them. It's, a, it's just a, a clear understanding that that's necessary in order to help build a safer internet and to assure that these systems are more secure. And Melissa, would you, uh, obviously, I think you would agree that the acceptance of the VDB program, the acceptance of ethical hacking, the acceptance of bug bounties, that's also a, a big change today than th two years ago, three years ago, five years ago? Absolutely. You know, when we started in 2016, this was a, a harebrained idea. <laughs> You know, this was really outrageous. And I can tell you over the last four years, when I brief out to other federal entities or, you know, even other governments, when we're talking about these types of things, they're like, oh, you invited only in America, would you be inviting hackers in to hack the Pentagon? That's crazy. But now, you know, looking at this six years later, like Ilana said, it's not out of the norm. It is widely adopted. We are not the oddballs out. You know, we're, we're now the grandfathered in program and we um, are looked to as a proof of concept that totally worked and is being expanded upon. So, yes, we're definitely looking at how do we expand that out to the other sectors? How do we help the small or medium defense industrial base organizations to be able to have this same success rate? Yeah, I mean, Jason, this is, um, if you really want to walk down memory lane here to talk about the history of the program, you know, the whole program, I was um, in the White House in 2015, 2016, when this, uh, as I won't say harebrained idea, that was Melissa, but when this idea came up for the first time, there was a lot of consternation at that time about the notion of inviting hackers into the Pentagon to, to hack the program. And, you know, fast forward now several years and you've got the White House actually encouraging it, all sectors. So 
we've come a really far way. We've come a long way from that, those early days. And, you know, the evolution continues because the idea for Hack the Pentagon came out of a pretty significant breach. At the time there was a, a breach of the Office of Personnel Management. And that actually happened because there was uh, access through a federal contractor. So now I think it's coming full circle because we're not just hacking the government systems. We're really that, you know, the Defense Department realized and, you know, DC3 in particular realized if we're going to really make sure we protect all systems, we have to not just secure uh, U.S. government programs, but also all the entry points into U.S. government programs. And that is, you know, I think, I mean, certainly Melissa can describe how they got there, but that is that must be part of the reason why they they smartly chose to expand to the defense industrial base. Not only is it important for the U.S. systems, it's also important for those um, for those contractors. So it's it's really great to see the the full evolution of the program and the expansion of it to the defense industrial base. I appreciate it, Alana, you you go, taking us a little bit back in history, but not too far back in the sense of we don't need a, a full history uh, lesson, but but it's good to, to remind ourselves how this kind of happened from that OPM breach. We have to take a break. My guests today are Melissa Weiss, the director of the Defense Department's Vulnerability Disclosure Program and the DOD Cybercrime Center. I'm also joined by Alana Cohen, the chief legal and policy officer at HackerOne. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Melissa Weiss, the director of the Defense Department's Vulnerability Disclosure Program in the DOD Cybercrime Center. I'm also joined by Alana Cohen, the chief legal and policy officer at HackerOne. Talk about the expansion to the defense industrial base, the DIB. Maybe Melissa, start us off with, with that discussion a little bit. What, what did I know? This was a pilot program that kind of kicked off in 2022. Where are we today with it? What have you learned? Well, there were a few things that we really set out to learn. One was when we wanted to identify, do we see the same type of vulnerabilities and attack vectors for the DOD uh, also within the defense industrial base? And um, in our lessons learned, uh, and you can go to our website at dc3.mil and take a look at uh, the posted out after action reports, we found that, yes, very much the same. The biggest bucket that we always run into is CWE 200, which is kind of a, a broad range, but basically that common weakness enumeration is for information disclosure. And so it could come through as a lot of different things, but it just means that somebody on the outside is getting in and they are getting valuable information, whether that's PII or PHI, um, and again, personally identifiable, uh, identifiable information or personal health information they're able to get that and extract it. So we want to make sure, as uh, Alana said, that we're getting all of those access points and tightening them down. Now, you may say, well, can't the defense industrial base take care of that themselves? But think 
about, you know, a lot of these organizations are pretty small. They can be fairly minuscule and maybe they don't have cybersecurity professionals uh, to take care of that for them. So that's really the importance that we saw in the defense industrial-based vulnerability pilot that we were running is how could we help cover those gaps or teach them how to cover their own gaps moving forward. And so that's why it was really important for us uh, to focus within the uh, defense industrial-based sector. That pilot finished up again in 2022. Are you still working with the defense industrial base or is there a pause and you're going to come back to them? Where are we today and where are we going in the future, uh, specifically around the working with the DIB? We had such a a good response for it. But I can tell you that uh, one of the chief uh, questions that I would get is, great, you did a nice small pilot, but how do you expand that out to 300,000 or even anything close to that to cover the entire defense industrial base? So we're looking at now, we did another run at how do we put together that scalability factor? How do we make it not so labor intensive? And those are the things that we're working on right now um, to do some more automation, you know, maybe some artificial intelligence, things of that nature uh, to bring about that change so that we can expand out that uh, program to a much larger base. Yeah. And from the Hacker One perspective, I mean, once again, DC3 and the Defense Department is a model for, you know, reducing cybersecurity risk by engaging with ethical hackers. So the defense industrial base pilot was a huge success from our vantage point. And we would love to see that expanded, not just to, frankly, defense contractors, but to all federal contractors. There are, sure, there are some very, very small contractors who might need some additional support, but there are also a number of contractors who could easily adopt uh, vulnerability disclosure programs for their own systems and try to, um, you know, make sure that, uh, again, they they help to increase the cybersecurity ecosystem, not just their own systems, but the entire ecosystem. Alana, generally speaking, and this may be a hard question since we're talking about when you look at the defense industrial base or just even the federal contractor industrial base, it's a, it's a pretty big thing. But do you find that you guys at HackerOne are getting more questions, more interest, more potential RFPs to respond to from a private sector perspective because of the DOD success, not that you had per se, but the success that DOD had in putting out these programs? Like, How much difference is it today when it comes to federal contractors using these tools and technologies than it was, again, I'll go three, five, seven years ago? I was not at HackerOne in 2016, but from what I understand, the relationship that uh, existed between HackerOne and the Defense Department in 2016 did help to boost vulnerability disclosure and an acceptance of bug bounty among other companies and certainly, obviously, agencies as well. Um, And over the years, our relationship, HackerOne's relationship with DOD has, uh, has you know, continued to provide comfort and security to companies who might otherwise be resistant to the notion of inviting ethical hackers in to hack their systems. But as I mentioned, as time has evolved, as, as the programs have evolved, as, you know, the messaging from the White House continues to sort of accept and encourage this uh, this form of cybersecurity, 
we have, there are fewer and fewer concerns about using this uh, method to, you know, secure uh, a company's systems. It really is pretty well established method. And I think just having DOD be comfortable with it, having now, obviously, we know the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has, you know, the, the binding operational directive, the OMB memos and, and and programs to help with VDPs. I know that that's also plays a big role to kind of sends the right message, if you will, to a lot of, of the vendor community. One of the things that the reason why these vulnerability disclosure programs are more important is because they they help highlight threats that, or, or threats or potential threats that maybe haven't been exposed yet or maybe haven't been exposed in, in, a, in a great deal. Can either of you talk about how the cyber threat landscape has changed? We know there's more ransomware. We know it's more, more nation state. Like we know kind of some of those basics, but from a VDP bug bounty program, how has you all been able to be as close to lockstep as you can as the threats have changed. One of the areas that we really have to look at is certainly there are maybe, I think the the number is somewhere around 30,000 patches that come out each calendar year. And organizations just do not have enough time or personnel to be able to employ all those patches. So part of what a VDP does is it helps to identify areas within the landscape that are being reported on. And um, one of the areas that we've seen is that organizations tend to like to go for only the critical and the high patches, but we see a trend where they're daisy-chaining the, uh, the low-level findings. And so by putting three or four or five of those together, you could get to a critical and high. So there's a gaming of the system that I think you need that continuous view of a, a vulnerability disclosure program to really see what's going on in the landscape, not just the big hot buttons that come about each time. You really want to look across as a, like a single pane of glass and see where those vulnerabilities are hiding. If you really want the details, um, HackerOne puts out a hacker-powered security report every year and it compares the types of vulnerabilities by bounty paid. So you can see the evolution of the, the, you know, the number of vulnerabilities. The number one for this uh, year is cross-site scripting. There's improper access control, um, improper authentication, privilege escalation. So you can see exactly um, what the number one uh, issues are for our customers. And I guess, Alana, my, my follow-up would be, would are you seeing each year different or, or, or are you seeing new ones getting introduced? Like I know when I read the and I'm a nerd for this, so you'll forgive me, the Federal Information Security Management Act report to Congress every year, my favorite sure. report of the year. <laughs> you see similar ones each year, but I'm wondering if it's the same in the bug bounty VDP community, that the same problems are popping up each year, or do they kind of ebb and flow? They are mostly the same problems as categorized by the report. But of course, they all take different form when you know when you actually see them in the wild. Right. And I think that's the hardest thing because so many systems and so many people, there's not, you know, we're not homogeneous uh, set of technologies. Everyone is so different and set up in such a different way. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the bugs are, a lot of the vulnerabilities are configuration issues, right? So you're going to see that take form in different or take different form among different systems. 
Without a doubt, I think the configuration management is always the one of the biggest challenges. I think when we talk about cybersecurity outside of uh, any specific program, we have to take a break. My guests today are Melissa Weiss, the director of the Defense Department's Vulnerability Disclosure Program in the DoD Cybercrime Center. I'm also joined by Alana Cohen, the chief legal and policy officer at HackerOne. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Melissa Weiss, the director of the Defense Department's Vulnerability Disclosure Program in the DoD Cybercrime Center. I'm also joined by Alana Cohen, the chief legal and policy officer at HackerOne. One of the things, Melissa, I want to go back to is, is when you talk about impact, and, and you can recite numbers and how many bugs you found and how many vulnerabilities have been closed, but what's the other measure or what's how, how else do you measure the impact of a VDB program? And because some, as you know, cybersecurity, sometimes it's difficult to measure because you can't measure what didn't happen. Well, because we did this, we didn't get hacked. Well, how do you know that? And the answer is, well, you don't, but we haven't been hacked this week. <laughs> so how, how do you measure kind of that, that impact? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's the age-old problem of when you're in IT, right? It's money well spent when something happens because they're like, great, they're protecting us. But when nothing happens, you know, your CFO comes around and says, did we spend enough, you know, are we spending too much money on these folks? But so it is, it is something like a lot of what we do uh, in the VDP for the DOD does not get out into the real world because um, we are protecting against it. But we do see, basically, we can look at the remediation of those as a block to something that could happen. And, um, you know, we, we spoke a lot earlier about the, the VDP program. Of the reports that we mitigated there, just using the Pondman Institute and IBM's uh, calculations of what that would cause in breaches, the 403 reports that we remediated protected $61 million worth of assets. So if you expand that out to the 47,000 reports that we have uh, processed for the DOD over the time, that's an astronomical number. So that's really how we look at it. It is a, a good ROI for protecting and lowering the risk of the defense industrial base as well as just the DOD-centric systems. Yeah, I'll just add the average cost of a bounty is setting aside the Defense Department's program, um, which pays out, you know, reputational points as opposed to, uh, you know, always cash rewards. For some of our for private sector customers, the average cost of a bounty is about $1,000. Now compare that to the cost of a breach, which is somewhere between four to 5 million, I think, if I remember correctly. And that doesn't also obviously calculate the reputational cost. And now that the SEC is requiring, you know, public companies to report those within four days, um, you know, perhaps the cost might even go up further. So I'd say it's money well spent. Well, and I'd hope you say that if you thought it was money not well spent, <laughs> maybe there'd be a bigger uh, question I'd have to follow up with you. Well, that was the clear conclusion, but hopefully you drew that conclusion on your own after I cited those numbers. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. 
I, what as was we kind of uh, wrap up here, I just want to find out where's this whole program going next. Melissa, start us off. Where does DOD mention the DIB and, and looking at potential areas to expand there? How else are you look, looking to evolve the, the DOD, VDP, and bug bounty program in the coming year or two? We never know what's going to come down the pike, right? Um, the new things happen all the time, but we are definitely looking at how do we um, shore up that uh, defense industrial base VDP? How do we make that uh, a lot more seamless and workable as a system? We are going to continue to take our program in new areas with our strategic partnerships. Uh, we want to see it continue to expand across Across the federal government, as well as uh, the industrial sectors. And is there, there seems to be pretty good support for it too. I mean, without getting into the deep weeds of Congress and money and funding, which you never know what, what happens there, but, but there seems to be support both on Capitol Hill and across the department for the continued expansion and, and, and broader use. We have had a lot of excitement, um, certainly in in both of those areas. So can't really uh, predict or say what we're going to get, but uh, you know it, it is moving in the right direction. All right. I, I would. I would again. Maybe another one of those. I'd hope you'd say that, right? Versus uh, <laughs> right. the opposite. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add. You know, the defense industrial base pilot was really a huge model for success, and we're really hopeful that we can extend that and broaden it to, to more defense industrial based contractors, but also to, to other federal contractors as well. And I was going to ask Alana, I mean, what kind of interest are you getting from other, con- uh, from other either contractors or agencies without going into you, know, obviously your list of, of clients, do you get a sense of uh, that? Uh, we have the BOD, we have memos, we have people who are interested in doing these things. Where 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 are you heading next from a hacker one perspective in terms of the uh, use of bug bounty and VDP? What, what's the what's the next level? Certainly, we have continued interest. Uh, you know, the company is ten years strong. Uh, we just celebrated our ten year anniversary at Hacker One, and um, you know, we continue to see uh, more and more customers uh, who are interested in Hacker One's uh, bounty program and other related programs. And so, you know, we're going to continue to to partner with not just the private sector, but also, you know, very proudly work on, you know, anything that the federal government sends our way, just because we're, we're, we're very happy to continue to partner with the U.S. government and ensure that the systems are secure. Uh, Melissa, Lana, I very much enjoyed our conversation. As always, we uh, really much appreciate your time. So let me thank my guests. Melissa Weiss is the director of the Department of Defense's Vulnerability Disclosure Program. Melissa, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. And Alana Cohen is the chief legal and policy officer at HackerOne. Alana, thank you as well for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.